Hey everyone, Sarah here. I put out this episode on families with Down syndrome members in 2018. As you probably know, some terrible news came out in 2020 about Jean Vanier, the founder of L'Arche. This episode talks about Vanier and the community that he founded. I have gone through it and removed anything that held up Vanier as a saint. But I have left the contribution that he made to better the lives of people with disabilities. I'm not trying to whitewash what happened. I was honestly sickened and heartbroken by the news. May God have mercy on us all. When we look at persons with disabilities, we sometimes first see the disability. Now, I'm, I'm blessed to be the Episcopal moderator now for a group called the National Catholic Partners with Disability. And one of the things that I kind of learned e- even more deeply is this movement away from seeing first the disability to see the gift. And so the notion that every human being belongs, we belong to God as God's creation, we belong to the human race, there is much more in common than we have than different. And that notion of being able to see the person first, one of, perhaps one of the greatest insights of Pope Francis, to not see the problem, not see the question, but see the person. And I think a person with Down syndrome has an ability to help us do that more quickly. This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Today's episode is about people with Down syndrome and their families. We started with Archbishop Kurtz from the Diocese of Louisville, or Louisville, Louisville? I don't know, Kentucky. Archbishop Kurtz was born in a coal town in northeastern Pennsylvania, and he says it was a pretty ideal place to grow up. He was the baby of the family, and his closest sibling, George, or Georgie as they called him, was five years older. So by the time I came along, uh, my brother George was kind of the star of our family. My sisters at that point were pretty much getting ready to get married, to move out of the house. And so um, in many ways growing up, it was my brother and me and my mom and dad. Georgie had Down syndrome, but when he was born in 1941, no one knew the cause. That wasn't discovered until 1959, by Jerome Lejeune. At the time Georgie was born, many children with Down syndrome were sent to live in institutions. That didn't happen in the Kurtz family. My brother George having Down syndrome helped our whole family to prioritize things on what's really important in life. And I think that affected me a great deal. A part of it was when I would go to a ball game or when we'd play ball or when we'd go out for something, my mom would always say, now don't forget, uh, take Georgie with you. And, and it was easy to do. George fit in very well. He, he socialized very well with other people, even though in terms of book learning, he didn't have what many of my, my friends had. Georgie was an equal partner in the games and adventures of childhood. I would say in the, in the circle of friends who knew my brother George, there was great acceptance. I can think of of us playing ball together. And even Georgie could not swing a bat quite the way we did. And and so we adapted by having someone would roll the ball down on the pavement to George. He would hit it, run the bases. And so he participated. Of course, kids are kids. 
and not always able to deal well with differences. That's actually really impressive. Yeah. Now, you may ask if there was any kind of meanness, and, and every once in a while, when people see difference, they sometimes don't know how to react. And sometimes, maybe in order to impress other people, they will make fun. So there were a handful of examples where I kind of had to speak up and defend my brother. But they were not the majority. Archbishop Kurtz's dad worked in the mines and retired with what was then called Black Lung while the boys were still in grade school. He was into hunting and fishing. The two of us would go with our dad uh, to the Poconos. Uh, during the summers when I didn't have school. And that was a, that was a great opportunity for us to, to be together. And I can remember uh, pitching and catching with a baseball. George liked, he loved baseball. He loved the Yankees and he knew all the statistics. Uh, he, could, he could do well on Jeopardy probably if there was something on that. Georgie really enjoyed children. His nieces and nephews knew him as the life of the party. Years later, one of my nieces said to my sister, I didn't know Georgie had, or Uncle Georgie, she said, I didn't know Uncle Georgie had Down syndrome. They were studying in school, and I think it was just, we were part of the family. And growing up with Georgie was part of how Archbishop Kurtz came to know that he could dedicate his life to serving others. My brother George, I think, had a way of helping me look at what it means to help another person, and it was very satisfying. And so I think I have a special love in my heart for for my brother George and and certainly for people with uh, disabilities and the gifts they bring. When then-Father Kurtz's parents had passed away, he became George's legal guardian. His bishop at the time, Bishop Welsh, allowed him to ready the rectory to be a home for Georgie. And so for 12 years, until he died in 2002, Georgie and I lived together, and it was really also a a great humanizing presence for the rectory where we lived because we lived with other priests and and also I think for the parish so it was it was it was really I, I think back of the great gifts that my brother was to me so it's obvious why Archbishop Kurtz has a heart for the work of the National Catholic Partnership on Disability one thing that does happen is I guess I naturally gravitate to persons with a disability. I, I, because I guess I've learned so much and have benefited so much, um, I'm eager to meet someone. If I see someone who, who has Down syndrome, I, I, I don't wait for them to say hello. I go over and greet them, and I think that's a credit to my brother George. Next, we're going to talk to a couple who have three children. Two of them have Down syndrome. I'm J.D. Flynn. I'm Kate Flynn. We have three kids. Max is six, and Pia is five, and Davey is a baby. Nine months. Nine months. Baby. He's baby. Baby. For many years, J.D. and Kate hoped to conceive a child, and when it seemed that God had a different plan, they started the adoption process. And did all the adoption stuff, background checks, all the meetings and all that stuff, and then we just kind of waited and waited and uh, had a couple failed placements that just didn't work out. But then along came this little boy. We didn't even hesitate to say yes when they told us there was this little boy with Down syndrome that was going to be born in December, and we just fell in love as soon as they told us about him. Uh, There's just something about him. Kind of the backstory on that is that when we were doing the adoption process, there's a form that we had to fill out that, or do like a checklist of like what kind of 
challenges you would be open to or differences you would be open to or just prenatal care, like what level of different kinds of prenatal care things you'd be open to, like if a mom drank or if the birth mom used drugs or things like that. So you just kind of have to, like, go through it and pray about it and discern about it what, what you think is the right thing for you to do. And, of course, everybody has to decide themselves. But our kind of approach to that was if we could conceive a baby with X or Y disability or challenge, then we should be open to adopting a baby with X or Y disability or challenge because, you know, we should be at least as open to the kind of baby that God would have for us through adoption as we would have been through conceiving a baby. If you listen to our adoption episode, you know about these forms. So when a little boy with Down syndrome was born, the Flynn's were chosen and they met their son, Max, when he was 10 days old. We first met his birth mom. We were, all of us were so very, very yeah, nervous. We were, like we were all shaking. She liked us. We liked her. And then she said, come on over to the hospital and meet Max. Or The baby. The baby. He didn't, he didn't have the name Max yet. yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, we met the baby. And, we, I mean, as soon as we saw him, we just fell head over heels in love with him. He was just so beautiful. So he was sweet. 10 days old. He was in the NICU. He was on oxygen. He was so tiny. He, <laughs> he was like, little. I mean, he weighed, like, I don't know, nothing. One, five pounds. Five some ounces, like, like six yeah. ounces tiny. or something. They brought Max home on New Year's Eve and actually surprised their friends, inviting them over to celebrate the new year without mentioning that they also had a new family member. Less than a year after Max was born, like, we got a call from our adoption agency saying that a woman had contacted them or a couple had contacted them, and it was a Wednesday, and she said that they had contacted them and a baby was going to be born on Sunday. They were looking for an adoptive family. They wanted to make an adoption plan. They were looking for two things, a family that knew about Down syndrome and a family that was serious enough that practiced Catholicism. And so our, our agency asked us, do we know anybody? Do the Flynn's know anyone who wants to adopt a baby with Down syndrome? Of course they do. So we looked at each other and thought, uh, yeah. well, uh, <laughs> we okay. know us. J.D. and Kate check in with their spiritual director about the prudence of this decision. He says he doesn't know if it's prudent, but he knew they were going to do it anyway, and that it would be a great blessing. And he was right. And we did adopt Pia. She was born that Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Um, we took her home shortly after that. Pia is the leader. She'd like to be the leader of everybody. <laughs> She's definitely the leader of the children. She'd like to be the leader of everybody. But Pia is the leader, and Max is just so in love with Pia. And he has been from the moment she was born. Follows her everywhere. He looks to her for what they're going to play and how they're going to react. If Pia... She makes up all the yeah, games. Pia makes up all the games. If Pia gets mad about something, Maxie gets mad about something. If Pia falls down on the floor and cries, Max pretends to fall down on the floor and cries because he wants to be just like He imitates yeah. everything she does. <laughs> now, children always teach their parents things, and Max and Pia are no exception. Everything is a joy to them, and I think that's one of the most unexpected joys is seeing life through their eyes. The construction, every, I mean, it's been going on for days. But it's brand new to them every time they go outside and see the construction workers and we have to stop and greet them and talk to them and everything is joyful. And the Flynn's children are super open to making friends with everyone and anyone. They don't think about them, any, anything about themselves. It's just the other person. They're so selfless. Like they're so focused on other people. They just expect that everybody wants to play with them and wants to be their best friend. They expect that everybody wants to dance with them in the grocery store. So they just bring that out in people because they sort of insist, insist on it in some ways. It does take us a long time to get to the grocery store because Pia insists upon shaking every person's hand yeah. that we need. Yeah. Max shows his love for his sister Pia in concrete ways. We were at dinner the other night and Pia was being fussy. She was mad that she couldn't pour the applesauce into the bowl, so she had to wait her turn until she calmed down to have applesauce. 
So J.D. was pouring the applesauce for Max into a bowl. He hands it to Max, and Max goes, Pia, Pia. And he just hands her his bowl of applesauce. Like, they were so looking forward to their applesauce after dinner. But he was so willing to just give her his. Yeah, she was in the middle of a tantrum, and he knew that's what she wanted. And, like, it kind of ruined for us, like, the ability to withhold it from her to make her behave. But, like, he just, he couldn't stand her being sad. And so he just gave her his little applesauce that he loved so much. Pia and Max both get very concerned about other people if they look sad. Pia always, she sees a sad person. She always goes up to them and asks, you okay, you okay, and pats their back and rubs their back. Max, if he sees a sad person, goes and he sticks his finger into their face and pulls their mouth into a smile, which is not, like, as as nice. But, but I see Max, like, I see at school sometimes or on the playground, if a kid is crying, he just drops whatever he's doing and he runs over to to comfort a friend or to rub a friend's back or pat them on the back if they're feeling sad. Now, Down syndrome does come with various health challenges that the Flynns have had to face together. Pia has already had cancer twice, and Max has had some heart problems. And the other part of the unexpected that's hard is like the challenge of teaching. Everything is just slower. We've been learning how to dress ourselves for like three years now. It just is a long process of slowly building towards and teaching them how to do things. It's hard for them with the low tone and, like, the developmental disability part of it. Like, it just takes time to learn things. It takes a lot of time to teach Down syndrome children how to do chores, for example. And Kate and J.D. have had to grow in patience. They have been blessed at their parish to have a special education program at the school. I mean, they 110% have gone above and beyond to actually have inclusion at their school and then to teach what inclusion means to their parents, to the other students, and to embrace Max and Pia and then their their other friends with disabilities. I mean, they have gone above and beyond to make inclusion possible at the school. It's, it's been absolutely beautiful to watch and be a part of, and it's also been very humbling to be so loved so well at a Catholic school. Of course, this is not the case everywhere, but it certainly is possible. It's not as much of a change as the school was anticipating, and it hasn't been as difficult or, or as expensive as the school was anticipating. It's also been a source of renewal and growth for the entire school community. There are four kids with Down syndrome at the school, and they're all so beloved and so celebrated. We just had a big World Down Syndrome Day celebration at the school. When I walk in the hallway with Max Pia, like, Older kids, eighth graders, are coming up and giving Max high fives or Pia hugs, and everybody knows their name. In the family, Max and Pia have reminded their parents to rely on God because they need help, and they ask for it. Watching their physical weakness or their, like, developmental weakness is that reminder of my emotional, spiritual weakness. I should be just as open as they are to asking for help and asking God for help and love and going to the Father the way they go to us with open arms. For me, that has been a witness of how God the Father wants us to come to Him and how I should come to God the Father with the expectation of being helped and with honesty and integrity about my own weaknesses, being able to come to the Father without shame of what we can't do or without trying to hide what we can't do, but saying in truth, you know, this is who I am and this is what I need. And then counting on God the Father with the Father's love, responding generous team in the kids an image of how I ought to approach God the Father and how much trust I ought to have in him and how much he loves me precisely because I've come to him for help. The Flynn's posit that this is part of why people can be uncomfortable around people with disabilities. 
It's a reminder to us of our own incapacities, our own flaws, and our own lack of love and acceptance of others. My name's Randall Wright, I'm a filmmaker. I've made documentaries since I joined the BBC after university, so I haven't really done anything else. Randall came across Larsh as an adult, but he was prompted by a childhood experience. When I started thinking about my great aunt, who'd been someone rejected as a simple person, she had a very distorted face, bloodshot eyes. When I was four, she'd rush over and sort of hug me. You know, she wanted to prove to me how much she loved me. But I found her really quite frightening. And so I'd had somewhere in me a sort of fear building up. And when I got to whenever it was, um, I don't want to tell everyone how old I am, but um, to middle age, I decided to try and deal with it. When I asked Randall why he wanted to look into this feeling of his, his response says a lot about who he is. I think there are times in your life when, or certainly in my case, you get sort of fed up with your ignorance somehow. And I, I try very hard to understand the world in various situations. I, I've been to Sierra Leone after civil war. I've been to places, in other places in sub-Saharan Africa where people were starving or suffering from disease. But what I kept encountering was bravery, courage, people who are coping much, much better than me. And so I had a kind of strange insight that if I did step into the unknown and face my past and face an aspect of my family, then maybe I would gain some sort of courage and confidence to to understand a bit more. He realized something profound through his self-examination and interaction with others. The people who have disability are usually fine. If they get support, they're fine. The problem is us. How do we step and step over our own barriers? How do we leave our very controlled lives and step into a situation where we can't use language sometimes? Sometimes we can, but sometimes we can't use language in the same way. We have to be prepared to be patient. But also we have to be prepared to be loved. I and mean, it sounds very strange. When I first went to Marsh, all the fear I described earlier just disappeared. I felt as if I'd arrived somewhere which, which was really close to the experience of going home, going, going to my home with my children. It was a place where I was completely accepted. And it was a place where... Um, I needed to stop pretending. I think we carry around with us a sort of professional shield, and that all has to go because you have to be an ordinary person. You have to look at the other person and who's coming towards you and greeting you and accept the greeting. And it's the most extraordinarily healing experience, I think, for anyone. Randall's family didn't handle having a disabled member very well. This is about Aunt May. She wasn't allowed to eat with us, and she was brought in any occasionally as a special treat to her, I think. I think otherwise, I think she was, she was excluded. And this was common in the 60s. People with developmental disabilities were often hidden away from society. They were seen as an embarrassment to their families 
and many were kept in institutions under lock and key. L'Arche was completely different. It was started in 1964 when a young man named Jean Vanier saw the suffering of people with intellectual disabilities in asylums in France. He asked for some help and invited two men from the asylum to live with him. He wanted to give them a different kind of life, a family atmosphere. The name L'Arche means the Ark and symbolizes God's care for his people. He was the person who changed attitudes to a whole category of humanity more than anyone else. But he worked over 50, 60 years writing book, campaigning, advocating people with intellectual disabilities and with a group of other absolutely extraordinary people created an, an international network of communities for people with intellectual disabilities and an international network of support for those people as well called Faith and Light. And his books about uh, disability are famous. His books about community are also groundbreaking. Jean Manier's work brings people with intellectual disabilities and quote-unquote normal people together. We build up barriers in our hearts. And what Jean's trying to say is open a, a new compartment of your heart. Widen your perception of humanity. Look more closely at the world around you. Look people in the eye. Realize that you share something. Realize they're there for you too. When people come together, ministry is never really one-sided, with one person receiving all the benefits. It's an encounter. When you experience yourself, if you like, in an area of risk ministry, you also encounter another aspect of yourself. You get to know yourself better. What happens is that we start to learn things. Um, it's the mutual relationship that's so kind of thrilling. And of course, is a model, sure should be a model, for how we relate to ourselves um, where, where there isn't a disability. Randall sees L'Arche as a foretaste of heaven. As Teresa of Avila said, all the way to heaven is heaven. The world of L'Arche really is the kingdom. It's, it's where uh, everything makes sense to me. It's a, it's a place that isn't about a utopia. It isn't about people being perfect, but it is about people really trying to get to know each other. Randall has been wanting to do a film about L'Arche for a long time. What L'Arche is, is a place that accepts both the beauty of the potential of relationships, unexpected relationships, healing relationships. It's a place of hope and, and a place of great beauty, but at the same time, it's a place that recognizes the huge pain that's often been there in people's the journey in people's lives. People with intellectual disabilities, like Down syndrome, experience a lot of challenges in their lives, but they want the same things as anyone else. Love, friendship, acceptance. Quite often the ch biggest challenge in their life is meeting rejection. They have suffered because they have been rejected. And all the generations are all looking for one thing, really, which is, you know, what we're all looking for, which is 
someone to be in love with, unconditional love. But people with disabilities, quite often, the ones who are sorted out, and they immediately meet them, offer friendship, they offer you a place in their lives. Um, the problem is us. Are we willing to make that leap? Are we willing to accept someone who didn't fit how we sort of fantasize that life should be? That's such a great Britishism, sorted. In other words, they know who they are and how to live, sometimes more than we do, especially if we have some crazy idea about being in control of things. Immediately you go into a large community, you have to give up your sense of power. I mean, I couldn't be a director in the sense that I couldn't tell anybody what to do. There's also, if one is being honest with themselves, very quickly a realization that these people who have been rejected and apparently aren't that clever know something that most of us forget, which is how important relationships are and how much they matter and how important it is to recognize that we all need each other. In a world of competition, materialism, and perfectionism, surely we could all use a reminder that relationships and love are what we are made for. Finally, a quick story before I let you go. As I worked on this episode, I came across an article at the Catholic news site Alatea. It was about a YouTube video for World Down Syndrome Day, so I got in touch with the author. I'm Zoe Romanowski, and I'm the lifestyle editor of Alatea. Alatea is A-L-E-T-E-I-A dot org. It's such a charming, beautiful video. What I loved about it in particular was the love and the joy that's shown that's there between the, the moms and their children. I'll link to this video at the show notes. I started watching it and, I don't know, teared up by like the second bar of music. It's moms with their kids lip syncing and signing along to a pop song. What I love about it is it normalizes Down syndrome. And um, many people are still afraid of it, still don't know much about it. I certainly found it emotional. You know, these aren't actors. These are real, real moms, real kids. And everything about their relationship comes through. And it's a simple video, really. It's just, you know, them in the car recording themselves. But, yeah, I think a lot of people resonated with it in some way, uh, loved it, shared it. So, and, and most people only do that when something it touches them on a deep level. World Down Syndrome Day started in 2006 and has been officially observed by the UN since 2012. Because Down syndrome is caused by trisomy of the 21st chromosome, it's celebrated on March 21st. Isn't that clever? I think so. I think as they continue to celebrate that day and hold that day on a worldwide basis. It just brings attention to, to Down syndrome, which we really need since there are so many people who not only don't understand it, but so many uh, lives are destroyed because people who think that Down syndrome is something to get rid of. And I didn't know this when I scheduled the interview with Zoe, but she has a personal connection as well. I, yeah, I myself have a sister with Down syndrome. Every single person with Down syndrome is unique, is just a unique human being like anybody else. And um, one of the things that I 
wish would get more attention just in the general public is the Special Olympics in which many people with Down syndrome and other intellectual challenges and physical challenges participate in, and it's such a beautiful event. So thanks to all my guests, and let's help spread the word that people with Down syndrome are a gift to their families, churches, and communities, and they're made for love. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor. Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.